Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 27 today. Genesis chapter 27, we're going to be starting in verse 41. A little bit of a review what we saw last time. It was when Esau came in. Remember that? Esau came in to Dad. He's looking for the blessing. He's gone and got the food. He's made the food. He's brought it in to Dad. And he just barely misses Jacob. Jacob had just come out when Esau goes in. But Esau finds out the hard way that he was too late. And his dad finds out, Isaac finds out, that he's been tricked. So we're picking up basically where that left off, where Esau was pleading and crying out to dad, don't you have another blessing? Isn't there something left for me? Did you give it all away? And dad says, I gave him basically everything Everything that was good to be given has been given. Picking up then with uh, Genesis chapter 27, verse 41. Somebody mind reading verse 41 nice and loud, please. So Isa hated Jacob because of the blessing which his father blessed him. And Isa said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriela. So Esau hated Jacob. Is this unprecedented that a brother would hate another brother so bad that he wants to kill him? Have we seen that anywhere else so far as we've been moving through this first book of the Bible, Genesis? Yeah. What were the brothers' names in that other story? Cain. Cain and Abel. Exactly right. Cain and Abel. You remember that Cain and Abel brought their offerings to God. For some reason, Cain's offering was not acceptable to God. Abel's offering was accepted. Cain somehow figured it out, somehow knew that his offering was unaccepted, and he uh, ended up getting very angry, and all of this is in Genesis chapter 4. The key verses there, verses 5 through 7, is when God appears to Cain, and it says, and Cain was very angry, his countenance fell, so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? So he apparently hadn't done well, something (laughs) had gone wrong in the way he had done it. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And this is the case in all of our lives, even to today. As ancient as this is, it's just as applicable to us today. God's ain't Cain. If you do not do well, sin lies at your door. Sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you to destroy you, but you should rule over it. We have a choice to make. Sometimes when we are in a path of choice making and we find out we're making bad choices, maybe the Holy Spirit brings to our attention, hey, you're making some bad choices. When we're in that moment, when we're confronted with that realization, we need to make a choice to do something about it. We need to resist continuing going down that road, but ultimately it's up to us. And the picture is that sin is lying at your door, picturing like a lion lying outside the door of a person, and you walk out that door, what's going to happen? You're going to be devoured. All right, We don't want to be devoured by sin, so what do we need to do? We must rule over it. We must master it. We must make the choices, the hard choices sometimes, that we need to make to keep from continuing down that path. So Cain, in his anger, God confronts him and says, don't let this go to the next step. All right, you're angry. Why are you angry? And God deals with him in his anger. And Cain fails the test, right? Even with God's warning, Cain fails and kills his brother. 
in that anger that he had. We didn't even have an idea that Cain was going to kill Abel. If you hadn't read the story before and you're reading along, when the killing happens, you're like, I knew he was angry, but my goodness, you just killed your brother, right? Here, it tells us what Esau's thoughts are. He, he's very angry. He hated Jacob, a little even stronger language than we saw with the Cain story. That was just angry. Here we have hated. Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father at hand, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Oh, man, he's, it's already telling us what he plans to do. Classic premeditation and deliberation. Oh, there yeah, you go, right? So <laughs> do we work in a courthouse or what, right? <laughs> right, he's done for. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I propose to you premeditation right here. <laughs> Excellent. Another thing that's interesting, too, is that you'll see that Esau says this in his heart, but we're not going to have to go very far before we find out that Rebecca finds out. Somehow she finds out. So at this point, in this verse, it's in his heart. The next verse, we'll find out she, she discovers it somehow. And then he ends up saying this. He's consoling himself, right? He's saying, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. I don't remember his father dying. Why would you mourn if your father hasn't died yet? He sees it coming soon. Exactly. Mm -hmm. He's expecting that his father's going to die soon. And that was kind of the flavor we had with this story as it was starting to unfold. I mean, the father is saying, you know, my days, I'm getting pretty old. I'm getting up there in years. I feel like I'm going to be very much longer. I want to give the blessing. So, you know, here's my instructions. Go get me some food that I love. So we have this idea that he's going to be dying soon. We find out that he ends up dying well into the future of this. At least 39 years more that he's going to be living. So Esau is willing to hold on to this hatred, this bitterness for a long time. <laughs> he doesn't know probably that it's going to be that long. You know, he probably thinks it's soon in coming, but the reality turns out to be quite different. Dad's going to live another 39 years. So dad's not dead. It's not a mourning that happens after the death of somebody. It's a mourning that is, as Ron was saying, it's something that would be typical in that period when you felt like your father was at the end of his life. All right. Uh, we see similar language in Luke chapter 9, verses 59 through 60. Jesus ends up saying, come follow me. And that person responds by countering, oh, but first let me go and bury my father. Yes. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. You know, you preach the kingdom of God. And you read that story, and it's offensive if you think dad's dead. If you think the son is just asking for time to have the funeral, why wouldn't you just grant that? Dad's not dead. Dad's getting up there in years, but he hasn't died yet. There's still time. All right. And Jesus would even be suggesting there, don't let that, even that, be an excuse to not be doing what you should be doing in the kingdom of God. Verse 42. Somebody mind reading verse 42. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob to her younger son and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Thank you, Ron. So in verse 41, it's in his heart. But by verse 42, mom's heard. How does mom hear? You know, Jesus ends up saying in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, the second half of verse 34, Jesus says and tells us, almost as a warning if you look at it in the context of this story, out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks. So if this is all that Esau's thinking, I don't think it'd be too hard to figure it out, especially maybe one night he, you know, drank a little too much, you know, and maybe he's saying stuff out loud that was in his heart the night before. And it wouldn't be hard for our servant to go, uh, ma'am, <laughs> I need to tell you what your oldest son was saying about your younger son. You know, so I can imagine that wouldn't be too difficult to discern after a little while. And I'm sure it shows on his countenance. 
You know, I'm sure the way he's walking around camp with that look on his face, you know, he looks like he wants to kill my younger son. Probably when she heard the news, it was probably like, okay, that actually makes sense with the way he's been behaving ever since this incident happened. Verse 43. Somebody mind reading verse 43. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise. Flee to Haran, to my brother Laban. Excellent. Thank you, Levette. So here's Rebecca. She's talking to Jacob. This is actually the third time in this chapter where she has said, obey me. Obey my voice, giving him instructions on what to do. And now we're starting to pull people into the story that we've seen before, some of whom we've seen before. So here's what I want to do. I want to start by listing a few of these people up on the board. And you've seen me do I get way too complicated in the way we do this, but we're going to simplify it a little bit, right? So here's Abraham, and Abraham ends up marrying who? Who was the other one? Hagar. So Abraham and Hagar, and they have a son. What was the name of that son? Ishmael. Ishmael, good job. Right. Abraham and Sarah have a son. Who's that? Isaac. Isaac, good job. He's the, he's the dad in this story, right? Uh-huh. So the dad in this story, who does he end up getting married to? Uh, Rebecca. Rebecca, that's yes, good job. And Rebecca is the daughter of Bethuel and also the brother, Laban. And Bethuel is the son of Nahor, who is actually Abraham's brother, mm-hmm. and Nahor's wife, or the mom of Bethuel, is Milcah. All right, so we can kind of fill in a little bit of family tree here to see what's going on. So here we have Isaac and Rebecca. Oh, I guess we should fill in the sons there. Who are Isaac and Rebecca's sons? Jacob and Esau. Good job. Esau was the firstborn, and Jacob. So right now in this, in this passage that we're looking at, you've got mom is talking to Jacob about... Your brother wants to kill you. And Esau is consoling himself, saying, as soon as dad dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. So Rebecca ends up giving instructions to Jacob. What are those instructions again, according to this verse? Go to Uncle Laban. Go to Uncle Laban. All right. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban and Haran. Arise here means get ready. It doesn't mean he's laying down in bed. All right. It doesn't mean he's on the floor playing video games. It, it, it just means get up, get ready, get your stuff. All right, and then flee just means to go quickly or escape. So there's some urgency here. Apparently, the way that he's been behaving and this receiving of the news is such that it looks like it's imminent. It looks like this is really close at hand. It looks like it's going to happen very soon. All right, and then verse 44. Somebody might read in verse 44. This is Mom talking to Jacob. Rebecca talking to Jacob. Stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away. All right, so she's saying, I want you to go to my brother. I want you to go to Laban's house, and you're going to be staying for a few days out there until your brother's fury turns away. So fury, there's another strong word, too. We're going to find out she's a little unrealistic in her expectations, all right? She thinks this is all going to blow over in a few days, all right? Uh, When you translate the Hebrew words there for a few days, what do you find? It means a few days, right? Um, It can actually be used to describe a little bit longer time, but it's certainly not the appropriate phrase to use when it turns out to be 20 years. He's going to be gone 20 years before he comes back home. He's going to be gone for 20 years into Laban's care before he comes back. So she thinks it's going to be a few days. I'm sorry, that's going to be unrealistic. Unrealistic Mm -hmm. expectations. Stuart Briscoe has this to say of that phrase uh, used in this verse. A few days? Did she really think that the whole sordid episode would be forgotten in a few days? Or was she up to her old tricks trying to convince Jacob that all would be easily manipulated? Notice that her outlook was not that confession of wrong should be made and reconciliation on the basis of forgiveness should be sought. 
She just wanted everything forgotten so that she could enjoy the fruits of her conniving without the inconvenience of putting any wrong right. A few days. It's going to be more than a few days. Verse 45, somebody might read that, and this is just a continuation of that sentence that we had started in verse 44. It's still Rebecca talking to Jacob. Verse 45. Until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him, then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be briefed of you both in one day? Excellent. Thank you, Kenny. So in continuation of that sentence that we saw in verse 44, she continues with this thought. But I think it's kind of funny how she ends up saying in verse 45, you catch the flavor of that until your brother's anger turns away from you and forgets what you have done to him. And I'd be thinking if I was in that situation, mom, this was your idea. You're the one that came up with this idea. Okay, I objected a little bit, but not really. And I went through with it. But still, me? Come on. How about both of us? You know, She was the one that came up with the whole idea. And he's the one getting in trouble. She says, I will send and bring you from there. The intention is basically, I'll send a message. You're, over, you're going to be over in Laban's house. I'll send a message to have you come back home. But she never does. There's never a message that's sent to him to come back home from her. In fact, it's God that calls him back. It's God that if you look in chapters 31, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 13, you find out that it's God saying to Jacob, go back. And it's interesting also that he's escaping wrath, right? He's escaping the wrath of his brother, but what ends up happening is when he goes to live with Laban, it ends up being at the end of the stay with Laban that it's Laban's wrath he ends up fleeing. So he's fleeing in one direction to get away from wrath, and then he's going to end up fleeing the other direction because of wrath as well. It kind of becomes like this motto for his life, if you will, in a sense, that he's fleeing this stuff that's coming along by the choices that he's made, or, or I guess it's unfair to even say that until we've looked at the next story. But he's fleeing wrath in both directions as he's going. I would say this as well. Because we know and because we're looking at this and we already realize, we're already, it's already been disclosed that he's going to be over there 20 years. I recognize what's happening here with Esau and his bitterness, his willingness to kill his brother, right? Kathy Jones was a clerk I used to work for, and she was the first one that told me the saying. He says, uh, holding on to bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. And I'm sure some of you have probably heard that in other places, but she was the first one I heard it from. It's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Here's Esau, and he's just bitter. He's angry. And you know what? Look at the destruction that's happening to this family. Not to say that he's completely in the right. He's not. All right? Not to say he's the only one in the wrong. He's not. Jacob's definitely in the wrong here. So is mom, and so is dad. We've looked at everybody has something to bear as far as blame goes in this story. The whole family is breaking down. And it's weird. This is the family God chose. <laughs> God chooses to do his great stuff through. The, the, there's, not a, there's not a gem in the batch right here. <laughs> All right? Maybe our broken down families then don't have to necessarily disqualify us from being in God's will. They don't necessarily disqualify us from doing something for God or God being able to use us. And you look at your background and you go, I'm, I'm disqualified. Look at my family. There's no way that God could use me. No, the stories like this are wonderful. They tell you God can use you. God can use me. Despite the brokenness of my family, despite the brokenness of your family, God can still do great things in this world through your situation, despite your situation. So unforgiveness has the potential to destroy you and others. If there were three main points I'd want you to take away from today, that would be the, that'd be the second one. The first one was beware of unrealistic expectations, all right? We looked at that one already when mom says, oh, you know, a few days, a few days. Beware of unrealistic expectations, and in that situation, it's the unrealistic expectations that a mom has for a son or a parent has for a child. Sometimes we have these expectations for our children that would be unfair. 
because they're unrealistic. In this situation, we're reminded that our children have choices. They make their own choices. So mom might want her oldest son in a few days to be done with this, to be over with this, but that's not going to be the case. In fact, her unrealistic expectations of a few days, we find out, are going to turn into decades. And then this other one, this would be the second one, would be unforgiveness has the potential to destroy you and others. Unforgiveness has the potential to destroy both you and others. Sometimes the person who holds on to bitterness, that holds on to the resentment, just wants it to destroy the other person. But in reality, it affects you as well. Holding on to that is just has the potential to destroy you and others. Genesis chapter 27, verse 46. Somebody mind reading verse 46? But actually, uh, pause for just a moment here. Here's where we're left in the scene. We're ending chapter 27, and mom is telling Jacob, get, get your bags packed. Go to your tent. Get all your stuff. Get ready to go. I, here's the plan. I want you to go to Laban's house. It's, he's my brother. You can stay there. I'll send for you. I'll tell you when it's over, when it's all blown over. Okay? That's what her instructions are to her youngest boy, the one she loves, the one that's always hung around the camp when the older one would go out hunting. Okay? Those are her instructions to her boy. But she's got to figure out a way to do this. She's got to figure out a way to make this happen because she needs dad. She needs Isaac to send him. What am I going to tell dad, my husband, the father of this boy, what am I going to tell him to get him to be able to send our youngest son away you know, and be able to travel safely and in good stead, in good standing. So she concocts a scheme, and we read about that in verse 46. Somebody might reading verse 46. And Rebecca said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like these who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So here's the scheme. She's going into her husband. And she's saying, you know what? This is just driving me crazy. I can't stand the thought of Jacob marrying somebody of the daughters of Heth. Who are the daughters of Heth? These are the Hittites. And specifically, if you look at the last verse of the previous chapter, we're in chapter 27. We're getting near the end near the end of chapter 27. Look at the last two verses of chapter 26. Somebody mind reading those. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Basemath the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they brought grief to Isaac and Rebecca. Excellent. Thank you, Levette. Do you see the connection now? She's complaining specifically about the daughters of Heth. And even more specifically, we know that there's some living in the camp. They are the wives of Esau, the son she doesn't like. And she's saying, those women that your favorite son married, you know that they've been a headache to us. We've seen that since a chapter ago, chapter 26, verse 35. And they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. She's saying, you know they're a grief of mind to us. You know that these women are a thorn in our side, that these women are bad news for our family. So she's using that as her scheme. It would drive me nuts if my little Jacob ended up having to marry one of them. Now, here's one thing I want to be very clear on. This is not a race issue. It sounds like it. Right here, it sounds like it. But it's really not. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 11, turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings is near the beginning of your Bible, but not right up at the front. If you got the same Bible I do, it's on page 345, but you probably don't. 1 <laughs> Kings? 1 First Kings. First Kings chapter 11. Okay. And I want to just draw your attention to the first 10 verses of this, of this chapter. Now, that's a lot of verses. We're not going to be able to go in depth on this, but I want to read it out loud and, and point out a few things as we go. This is Solomon. Solomon is way in the future from what we're reading right now. Solomon is the son of David. He's the third king of Israel. There was Saul was the first king, no heart for God. 
David, the second king, whole heart for God. And then now we have his son, Solomon. We're going to call him half heart for God. He's kind of half hearted. God appeared to him twice in his life. And basically he told Solomon, God told Solomon, if you follow my guidelines, I'll bless you. And if you don't, things are going to not go well. Same thing he would say to us, right? (laughs) God would have the same parameters for us. But in these first 10 verses, here's what it says. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. You see that? Mm -hmm. Hittites. These are the women. These are the same women that we have in this story right here. Hmm, bad races, right? These are not the races you should marry. No, it's not a race thing. Keep going. From the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you, for surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. It's not a race issue. It's a spiritual issue. This is just the way that the women of this area that he's specifically describing have been raised. They've been raised to follow this God and that God and the other God, but not the true God. You get married to them, something's going to happen. Your heart is going to go after them and your heart is going to go after their gods. Is that an unrealistic danger? Is that for real? That's for real. If you continue reading on, what do you end up seeing? It says, Solomon clung to these in love. That's the way verse 2 ends. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives. Okay, that's a problem, right? Because you got that many wives that are not obeying and following the right God. They're going to lead you astray. 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart, just as was predicted. And you see that if you have a strong bond with the person that you've married, and they have a completely different God that they're worshiping or completely different traditions, you're going to end up probably assimilating somewhat to those traditions. You're probably going to end up, your kids are going to be a little bit of a combination of what, what's going on with that mom brought in the relationship and what's going on that dad brought in the relationship. So the concern, the concern is not so much as race as, as much as the traditions of worshiping other gods, most specifically. If you continue to look at there, verse 4. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem. And for Molech, who is Ashtoreth, Milcom, Chemosh, and Molech? These are false gods. These are gods of a completely different religion. These are fake gods. The one true God says, worship me and me alone. Don't marry those other women. They're going to lead you astray. They're going to take you to worship things that are not even not even real. They're going to take you to worship false gods. These are the names of those false gods. And he did, likewise, for all his foreign wives. So apparently, Ashtoreth, Milcom, Chemosh, and Molech weren't enough. He ends up doing likewise for all of his foreign wives. How many is that? That's a lot. He had a lot of wives, so they're going to lead him very much astray. And uh, who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Verse 9, so the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. So her issue, when we go back to this story that we're looking at in Genesis chapter 37 at the very end, we've got mom and she's concerned about her son, her youngest son. And she says, husband, you know that this is going to drive me nuts. If he ends up marrying somebody from around here, because nobody around here believes like we do. Nobody from around here worships the one true God. 
And so she plants the seed and he takes the bait. Okay, I'm mixing my metaphors. <laughs> All right, but you know what I'm saying. He ends up taking it up and we see in verse 1 that it says, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Canaan is the land that they're living in. He ends up giving instructions in verse 2. Somebody mind reading verse 2. Arise, go to Padam Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Good deal. Thank you very much, Mike. So now that mom has got dad bought in on this scheme, dad can send away her favorite son with the instructions and the blessings of basically go find your wife in basically the same place that I found my wife. Because that's the household where his wife came from. That's where Rebecca's from. That's Rebecca's brother Laban. All right, uh, It's mentions here, but doesn't name them. From the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. The daughters we're going to end up seeing, just to fulfill the chart here, to finish the chart, are going to be Leah, the firstborn, and Rachel. So there we, we're able to finish the chart. So if it helps you to kind of see who the players are and where they all fit in, that uh, hopefully helps a little bit. But So here's the son Jacob. He's been sent by Rebecca with Isaac giving the uh, formalities to the, uh, to the occasion, sending Jacob over to Laban's house to marry one of the daughters of Laban. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's kind of setting us up for the next stage or what's going to end up happening very soon. Cousins. Say that again? Marry your cousins. Marry your cousins. Oh, yeah. good observation. Yes, these are first cousins. Mm-hmm. Back in that day, and in fact, even to today, in the Middle East, that's not uncommon to marry a cousin. Mm-hmm. But in our way of thinking, it's kind of like, oh, that's kind of a little weird, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, um, that's exactly what it is. They're cousins. First cousins. <laughs> yep. Uh, one of the handbooks I ended up reading, and I ended up copying and pasting the part that says here, marriage with a cousin was acceptable among the ancient Hebrews and continues to be common among people in the Middle East today. So, yeah, good observation. Was it Mocha the niece? The horse niece? Yeah, there were, there were other relations up here that are pretty close that we would look at and we go, oh, that's kind of close. <laughs> All right, verse 3. This is now dad. This is Isaac giving a blessing to Jacob. Verses 3 and 4 constitute that blessing that he's going to end up giving. And it says here, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. This is actually the Abrahamic blessing, the one that God gave to Abraham originally over in Genesis chapter 12, that we saw reiterated in Genesis chapter 17, that Abraham passed on to Isaac and God reiterated to Isaac as well. And now Isaac is finally giving it to Jacob. God intended all along that it go to Jacob. But you remember that things got messy. And dad ended up, you know, intending to give a, a very uh, materialistic blessing to his son Esau, ends up getting stolen by Jacob. But finally, it looks like dad is getting back on track. In fact, if I was to say what would be the third main point of today, it would be get back on track. In this situation, from all that we can see, it sounds like dad realized that he had gone astray or he'd gone off track. And then when it was brought to his attention through that whole sordid affair of the you know, stealing of the blessing and whatnot, he realized that God was bringing to his attention, you need to get back on track. And so here he is. He's giving that blessing. He's passing that spiritual torch, if you will, to Jacob as where it rightfully belonged it, not to Esau, his favorite. All right. So he's getting back on track. The challenge to us, get back on track. If we're in a place, no matter where we are, no matter how far along we are, even if we think our days are near end, and we realize, oh man, I'm a little off track here, and God would call you back, get back on track. Get back on track. By the way, one thing I want you to notice as well, uh, Jacob's going to be leaving now. 
Jacob is going to end up leading, leaving. We see that in verse 5. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. He's being sent away, and he's leaving everything that's familiar, right? So here's what I would do is I would give you uh, this fourth one right here. It would be move out of your comfort zone. Move out of your comfort zone. Here Jacob is having to leave his family. He's having to leave everything that's familiar to him. He's having to leave behind the wealth that he could be continuing to live under. He's having to leave behind that security, that being able to, you know, fall asleep at night and say, I'm, I'm comfortable and safe here. He's having to leave that. Everything familiar to him, he's having to leave. He's moving out of his comfort zone. Sometimes God's will would have you to move out of your comfort zone. It's definitely God's will, as we'll find as we continue to read, that he go on this journey. But it ends up being awkward and painful and scary to be outside of what we'd like to be. We want to just stay put. We want to stay in the camp of mom. And God would say, no, I'm calling you out. I'm, I'm sending you off. I want you to move out of your comfort zone. I got something better for you. My will takes you over there. Yes, Levette. That, you know, out of your comfort zone. I had to do what we call call to worship this past Sunday. Okay. And I'm not the one who likes to be in front. <laughs> right. I was so nervous. But it was, you know, I found out Thursday that they said, oh, Levette, we want you to do call to worship. And talk about the fires and what God showed you through the fires. We're talking about out of your comfort zone. I couldn't sleep until after Sunday was over. I couldn't like, God, really? And did you survive? I, I you survived. <laughs> that is so great. We need to get out of our comfort zone sometimes. Sometimes that's where God wants us. If we're staying put, sometimes God says, I got more for you. You just got to be willing to take a risk. You got to take a chance with me. All right. So he's stepping out of his comfort zone. Thank you, Levette. That's awesome. Here's another thing I want you to notice, too. Where does he have to go to get his wife? He has to go to Haran. It's 500 miles away. 500 miles away, it might as well be as the other end of the world. I mean, back then, I mean, you just can't get on a jet. You just can't drive in your speedy car and get there in no time at all. This is the other side of the world, for all intents and purposes, is the way that you think about things back then. He's having to go that far to find a suitable spouse. You know, sometimes, and I had this conversation with a family. They invited us over to their house on Sunday, and we had a great lunch with them. And their oldest daughter is getting to that age where they're like, we don't know who she's got to marry. There's nobody that we know of. She has nobody in her peer group that she really feels like is is suitable, you know? Yeah, you can find people the right age, but they're not they're not following God. And you might be able to find people that are following God, but maybe they're not marriageable. To meet the criteria of the right person to be able to marry, you know, there's nobody in this area that we're used to living in. And I couldn't help but, because I knew this is what I was teaching, and I go, oh, I got to tell you this. And we talked about this. Here, he's got to go to the other end of the world. He's got to go to the other side of the world to find a suitable spouse. <laughs> maybe that's the story for your daughter. Maybe your daughter's going to end up finding that person, but it's not going to be anywhere in your little circle of what you're used to. Maybe it's going to be the other side of the world. And they're like, oh, don't say that. <laughs> Expensive. <laughs> All right, moving on from there. Uh, by the way, in one of these, Victor P. Hamilton says this. He says, if Jacob had to marry a monotheistic Yahwist, he would die a single man. There are none. He must marry someone outside the land to reduce the risk of assimilation. So sometimes there just seems to be none. Um, in this case, go to the other side of the world. Verse 5, so Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padanaram. To Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. I've already read this once, uh, but I wanted to come back to it just to say this. 
in the wording here, uh, one of the commentators makes mention and, and points out that there's nothing negative in this, in dad sending off his son. Dad's been tricked. But you remember that dad had this realization where he says, and surely he will be blessed. Where It was as if God appeared to him and said to him, I've accomplished my will despite you getting in the way of it. And so it seems like we find in the language here a confirmation of that of sorts. That dad has come to reconcile that this was God's will all along. And so he's sending him away that there's nothing negative in the way that this is worded. And he sends him away with that blessing that he should have given him all along. 500 miles away. That's how far he's going to end up going. 500 miles away. And this trickster, Jacob this trickster, is going to end up getting tricked, as we'll find when we get into those other chapters. But one other last thing that I want to point out, and it's kind of a sad thing too, is that this mom and her favorite son, the young son that she sends away and says, oh, in a few days, I'll send for you in a few days when your brother's wrath. We found out it's not a few days, it's going to be 20 years, and mom's going to die before the son ever comes back. This is a parting that they're never going to see each other again. This is the result of the scheming and the devising and the planning and all kinds of negative stuff that was going on where everybody was doing something wrong. Everybody was acting somewhat out of God's will, if not completely out of God's will. And this destruction that happens to this family, we end up seeing this one sad part at the end. Mom's never going to see Jacob again. You know, favorite son, favorite parent. Kind of sad to end on that. But like I was saying, if I, if I was to point out the main points, though, the main points would be these. Beware of unrealistic expectations. And like we mentioned, parents and children, we have those expectations, but we need to be careful. We can have hopes for our children. But when it comes to expectations, be careful about having unrealistic expectations for your kids. Number two, get back on track. If you're off track, if God you know, brings it to your attention, don't justify it, don't excuse it, don't send it away out of your mind. Take that information that the Holy Spirit's brought to your attention. Get back on track. And then finally move out of your comfort zone. Be willing to go to a place that's uncomfortable if it's where God is calling you. And it's much better to be in God's will in an uncomfortable place than to be in a comfortable place outside of God's will. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the challenges that you give us, but we don't really want them. But we recognize that uh, when you call us, Lord, number one, our life is not our own. And number two, it's better to be in a place where you are than to be in a comfortable place where you're not. Help us to be in your will, Lord. We pray that you would help us to um, also be careful of having unrealistic expectations for ourselves or for others. Help us, Lord, to be realistic and help us to submit everything to you, recognizing that you're the Lord, not just of our lives, but of all of our circumstances and even the lives of our children. We, we turn them over to you, Lord, instead of holding on to them too closely or too dearly in the sense that uh, we want to dictate every decision that they make. No, Lord, help us to realize they have their own free will given by you. And we pray that you would lead and guide them. Help us, Lord, to have hopes, to keep them in prayer, uh, but to not have unrealistic expectations. And if we're off track, Lord, help us to get back on track. And this is going to be every day in our lives, Lord. There could be a morning we wake up and we're on track, and the next morning we're off track. Help us, Lord, uh, by bringing to our attention your Holy Spirit, knocking on the door of our heart saying, hey, get back on track. We pray that you would help us to be always responsive. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys have a wonderful day.